0: What is up everybody? Welcome to The Blade Dive. My name is Parker Bohan. I will be your host for the show. And if you're tuned in for the first time, thank you. And don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Follow us on social media as well at The Blade Dive on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tag us in those photos with the hashtag #TheBladeDive. Dive. Alright, my guest today is J.P. Martin. And if you don't know J.P., JP is definitely somebody that describes himself as jack of all trades, master of none, which personally, I think that's a pretty humble description of oneself. And that has a lot to do with his experiences in the snow industry, as well as the lessons learned. JP has traveled the world as a pro snowboarder, but has also contributed to multiple resorts as an operator and a terrain park manager. I'm really excited for everybody to hear his stories about working on top of Donner Summit with the railroad clearing snow off the tracks, and there's some cool perspective overall in this episode. So, if you're at home right now, go ahead and grab your favorite drink, kick your feet up, and if you're in the machine, you know what to do. Turn up the volume. Go ahead and give it to you. All ready. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Another day, another episode of the Blade Dive. And my guest today, I'm super stoked to have on the show just because, you know, one of the components that I hope we get into is an adventure that I'll let him introduce eventually. But J.P. Martin is my guest on the show. And I just want to say, J.P., thanks for taking the time and welcome, man.
1: First of all, thanks for having me, man. I'm so stoked. And I just listened to Brandon Dodds opening the show. I just hope everybody that's listening is sitting in their cats right now because that is just the social media right now. Watching people like post windshields, sunsets, sunrises, and podcasts—that makes me stoked.
0: Yeah, it's it's actually been incredibly humbling to see people listening to the podcast and their machine, and then. Sending messages and just the stoke is real. So I never thought it would be this big a deal. You kind of start out with an embryonic idea, and so I'm super grateful for people no. sharing all the stuff, man, that that they're doing in the machine while listening.
1: Totally, totally. When I saw the when I saw this pop up, I was like, "Oh my god, Parker!" And I was thinking about the first and worst blade dive that I ever had, that really shook me. Uh, I had a I had a job on a logging site and I had a BR-100 that had a top speed of 23 miles an hour. Uh, and I happened to hit a stump at full speed, full sticks. It killed the machine. Uh, and I was like literally like eight miles out in the middle of nowhere.
0: Dude, that's that's a bit heavy. Uh, <laughs> that's a deep blade dive for sure. Not only from the perspective of being in the middle of nowhere, but what you ran into. But look, man, I'm stoked you're on the show. Um, thanks for sharing that note, real quick. I'm stoked you're on the show. So again, like, thanks for taking the time. And I think we, uh, I think we jump into it. Let's do this, man.
1: Oh, dude, I'm so overwhelmed, kind of. You know, like I, I've done so many different things in a cat that I don't. I'm a jack of all trades, master of none, and I, you know that's kind of why I wanted to come on and talk about it. Was because. There are so many people that I look up to.
0: Yeah. And I think everybody's been that way that's come on the show so far. You know, you've got your your, your individuals that you've idolized or put on a pedestal, looked up to, however you want to frame it. Um, it's just really cool to hear people share stories. So, but we're also talking about people's fuck ups as well, their failures, their life lessons that they've taken away from this job. I mean, that's a big component of what we're discussing. Oh, too, yeah. If so. There's
1: a way to mess it up. I've
0: probably figured it out. Yeah. That's. <laughs> <laughs> Good that you can just throw that out there. That's what I'm talking about. I really want to start with the beginning too. I want to go chronologically with you as much as possible, with all like the good nuggets in between. But let's start from the beginning and really just draw up a picture of what it looked like to to kind of grow up as JP Martin and and share that story with everybody first.
1: Oh, uh, let's see. I like to tell people I was raised by wolves on the outskirts of uh, Aspen, Colorado. And literally like my dad owned Wolf hybrids and I was like bell to bell outside kid. I would only come home because I had to eat and my mom was worried about me. But, you know, like it was about being outside. I mean, when I was in second grade, I've shortened my name to JP instead of John Paul Martin because I could get out to recess quicker, getting my recursive writing practice done faster. I was like, finding the efficiencies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: Sure. Shorten your name. I mean, how many people can do cursive now? I can't. Yeah, Aspen was, a, was an early adopter to snowboarding.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. to. I, well, let's hit that real quick. So if you're participating in the snow industry, maybe you're a transplant into the area or the other side of the coin would be that you've always been there your whole life. And that's interesting to me because from my perspective, outsider looking in, it was like, dude, like got to get there. Need to be there. Here's the location that I want to go to. But like I said, on the other side of that coin, it's an interesting story to kind of unwrap uh or you know, go through each page of what maybe that person's life looks like growing up in that town, in that location, around that mountain. And you were in it. Like you came up in an era that was really kind of like that golden age of the shred. And you were around Aspen, Highlands, Buttermilk, following around what I would have to assume would be some pretty legendary uh snowboarders at the time.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Like we I was I was an Aspenaut. And that was what they called the the Aspinauts were the, the little ski kid drums. And I swear that we ruined the knees of most of our coaches with overshot landings at, on Buttermilk. Because Buttermilk was kind of a park. It was a natural park mountain that just had all those um, perfect rolls and flats that became... Uh, such an amazing place to build a park and you know 20 years 25 years later you know it was uh, (laughs) it it was my babysitter
0: yeah dude that's so cool but that perspective is what I'm talking about from an outsider looking in I'm going you know my outlet's going to be something else because I'm growing up in a different part of the world or the states rather for me but were you the you you said you were the bell-to-bell kid were you going hey mom and dad peace out I'm out, I'm going shredding. Or were you kind of around that ski team vibe and doing the uh, the team kind thing?
1: Of, kind of both. Like my dad was a ski instructor for in Aspen for 47 years and he would have to go to work. So he would drop me at buttermilk at like 7.30 in the morning. And I, he wouldn't pick me up till like 5.30 PM. And I had to ingratiate myself not to get kicked out of the base lodge. Um, and I, and I mean, shout out to the Pelletier family, kind of an iconic family that would go out and build a Golande jump over on the Tyhack side. And, um, they had 17 children. I remember it was like the Pelletier family was a ski family and they lived downstairs in the restaurant at Tyhack.
0: Very cool. Like, so pseudo family kind of sounds like you're exploring things through, um, what they kind of have to offer, which is rad. Like, you know, you got to find friends somehow. um, And you're in a close knit community is from, from what I gather, that's what you're describing. So yeah. Was, is that right? Like were, was everything pretty tight knit there? Like you had your crew, uh, whether it was the family, whether it was the team, whether it was your dad and the ski instructor thing, is that?
1: Uh, Well, one of my favorite nicknames of my, one of my buddies growing up was train wreck. This guy, Nate Hansen. And we would always, um, try and out jump the Galunde jump uh, on tie hack. And it was like a six foot tall cheese wedge with probably 120 foot long landing. And Nate was famous for like landing at the bottom and falling out of his skis, like coming completely out of his skis and his poles, hat, goggles, gloves, uh, and is skis going screaming towards the the base lodge? I mean, it was just like we had fun growing up, and it was it's what just gave me that wanderlust for life. Really, I mean, it was just like the ski program was all about fun. It was all about jump runs, and none of none of it was built. So we were skiing in the trees. We were hitting natural rollers, and that just to me it was like okay this is what skiing is you know like and then transition to snowboarding and that mountain was insane for snowboarding
0: it's cool to hear like your perspective of because i've only spent a short period of time there and from from my experience it was very much like kind of flowy snake runs through the park um how the park was laid out i mean i'm i'm seeing it through the later year lens where all that stuff's been developed and you've got stuff like the x games there and you're, yeah. you're going through their regular offering for a terrain park. And I was stoked. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. I can't even believe I'm here right now. Um, but yeah, it sounds like you were in your groove. Like you were doing your thing. You were developing a sense of who you were through your experiences of, of having some great friends and kind of figuring out like, damn, there's probably more that I could do with this. And I want to figure out what that is. But for right now and forever, I'm just going to continue to be me be creative with the shred and, and, uh, and have fun with it. And you're doing your thing too, which is cool. Like you're being you, but I want to know too, what maybe high school looked like for you just to kind of draw a picture of that as well, because I'm always a comparison guy and I definitely grew up in the South where people are just too polite for their own good. And it's almost fake. And, um, what was high school like? Was it just like normal or what, what was that normal? No,
1: no, no, no. It was like Beverly Hills high school, um, kids would get outies for their sixteenth birthday, and I was like the greasy farm kid from ten miles down valley and uh my parents worked really hard to to provide for me to be a part of that lifestyle you know it's like as you get older you get a, you know, you get more appreciation of what your parents have done. you might be like, oh I don't have this, and I don't have that, but when you realize it, like holy shit, I just grew up and Beverly Hills and uh, I got to experience it all and I'm so thankful for the actual like Aspen experience
0: yeah and I mean like I said I didn't spend that much time there but that place is pretty magical there's some there are some cool things that you can get into there that would be really cool to be exposed to as a kid growing up Um, there's also some history there too so
1: oh it's it's all like smoke and mirrors i mean don't get me wrong there's a dirty fucking underbelly of aspen that you're like woo you know like growing up and hearing about people being blown up in their cars by drug cartels because they turned state evidence to against the cocaine industry you know it's just like okay I don't like
0: that. Yeah. I mean, every town's (laughs) got history, though. You can't run from that. Every town's got history. But yeah, it sounds like you knew you were pretty just privileged, like you had an opportunity. I was lucky.
1: I was so lucky because I I grew up with a job. I grew up working. um, I got to travel in high school. I almost didn't graduate high school. I was actually forced out of high school.
0: Ooh, dude, that's deep. Uh, Let's hit that for a second. What was that all about?
1: Well, I was a ski racer and I, and I was gone like Thursday through Monday all winter long. And I was like junior Olympic level ski racer and raced all over the place. And a lot of the guys I went to race against ended up on the US ski team, but I got super burnt out on it because the Aspen program just didn't, they stopped having fun and for me, skiing was was all about having fun, and that's why snowboarding came in. I think when I was like 13, somebody brought a Sims Lonnie Toff Pro Model snowboard to this middle school, and we had this huge sledding hill outside our middle school. And that's all I wanted to do was ride that plastic deck with a skateboard interface with a ski bolted underneath it to keep the nose from folding up and like one bungee over your feet and i was hooked i was so hooked i ended up building a snowboard in shop when i was 14 and the the woodshop guy was totally cool with it he's like all right we're gonna have to put this thing in a press and we don't really have a press so let's go grab one of the railroad ties outside and he cut the railroad tie on the bandsaw and we put this piece of plywood in it and we put all these pipe clamps on it and took it and put it in the school nurse's bathtub. And for like five weeks, it was my job to go up to the school nurse's bathtub, which became a science experiment with a creosote railroad tie and a bunch of pipe clamps and like tighten all the pipe clamps so that the nose got bent. And in the meanwhile, I was making like bird houses and letter openers and all that crap that
0: yeah, well, for sure. Um, but the stoke was real. I guess that's my where my take is on it. In your story, there, the like you were just really creating what you wanted out of the materials that you had. Like that's straight up. That's what was. Well, I was didn't.
1: A, I didn't know where to get a snowboard.
0: See, and that's what. And, I, and, and, you know, like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That perspective of because i literally came from it's like you have you must build a birdhouse this is what you must build you cannot build that and it's like what the yeah. fuck like why not <laughs> I? so yeah man like that's so awesome but tell us how it came out did you write it did it i mean what happened there i don't know that's the other half of the story <laughs> i want to know what happened uh,
1: dude it was sick i wrote it for about 10 minutes and it broke <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's awesome <laughs> That's so good. So I
1: pinned That's... it off the biggest rock and just like landed <laughs> la- landed full lawn dart and it snapped underneath my feet and I, I I don't even think I took it home. I think I threw it in the woods.
0: <laughs> what a story, man. That's awesome. I was so pissed. I was okay, pissed. well, real quick, like the airtime. What was the what was the airtime like? Was it worth it?
1: it? Was airborne over the town of Aspen just going ho 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 and then it just snapped underneath my feet. <laughs>
0: Oh man, <laughs> I've got my laughs in for the day. <laughs> oh man, what a story! One thing that we're really trying to just we're we're attempting to kind of not get inside information, but just peel back the layers and just really let people know who uh, who these guests are that are coming on the show. One of the questions that's kind of become a bit of a staple is, you know, JP, what's maybe one thing that defines you or is part of you that has nothing to do with the snow industry whatsoever?
1: um well i don't know to get personal i'm fucking dyslexic as hell i can't even spell that word and uh adhd i guess would come to mind like you just like uh in aspen i was fortunate to have a mentor uh when i turned 15 I met this guy named Lou Dawson who was the first like ski mountaineer to ski all of the Colorado 14ers. He wrote a book about it. And um he took me under his wing and we did all sorts of stuff like built I built a racing mountain bike and it was different from like having a stock bike. Like I had like road bike bars but they were like touring bars. They were called specialized bull moose handlebars. And I raced all over Colorado in the Norba series and ended up like second in the Norba Nationals in Durango. And there's no age groups. I was 15. Like I I drove myself to Durango from Aspen in a like an old Toyota uh two-wheel drive Toyota Love or whatever it was with no license plates and no insurance. And it was like a four-hour drive. I drove all the way down there to do that race. Like I, I was super into mountain biking. The guy that gave it to me said that if I got caught or pulled over by the police, he would just report it as stolen and take the insurance cash in. So he was all stoked. He was just like, dude, if you get busted, I win. If you bring it back to me, I'm glad you got to go to the race. He was one of the mechanics at the Hub of Aspen bike shop. It I pretty much defined me for a very, very, very long time. It was just big ego, big ego, huge coming out of nowhere. I guess it was like small town kid um, not, and being like country kid, being a a farm kid, farms and ranches and wanting to like try and impress the kids who did get an Audi for their 15 and a half year old birthday. You know, it was just like, yeah. I'm going to show you guys.
0: Do you do you think that's something that stuck with you for a while? Uh, that that the way you carried yourself, trying to whether you were trying to out to prove something or the way that you went about winning or losing was that ego kind of in place for for quite some time in your life? No,
1: I mean it was just like this driving force uh, that carried through my mid 30s of what we probably see in social media nowadays are like check me out, I'm ripping. And we didn't have that outlet. So it was like contests, it was um travel, uh and it was it was just how many tricks you could do, which back then was like Tindy Indy nose grab.
0: Right on, yeah. I I wanna know too, also So you're there in Aspen and you're doing your thing, you're growing up, Uh, you got your childhood and you got your dreams that you're trying to chase after too. And so as a kid, you know, in a a different era, different time, like you're just raising hell, doing whatever you want to do, doing your thing. And you've got like people around you that were maybe some influences, whether they were like childhood friends or um, uh, pro athletes that you were looking up to or like local legends, however that panned out but like you were just in this area where i feel like just like any other ski town that's that stereotypical you would probably have some kind of buzz or uh just joy or passion towards trying to either board sport it or ski it or skateboard what did that look like who were those people that that you were around
1: well like my my early adopter buddies were like my Two like skateboard buddies, right? So we would try and skateboard in the gravel of Aspen, and then um, snowboard because high school, the Aspen High School, had an open campus. So if you didn't have class, you didn't have to be there. And so uh, my buddy Randy Metz and Matthew DeShooter. Randy's a lawyer now, and Matthew DeShooter is uh, a NICU. Uh, anesthesiologists, so pre- premature children like these guys <laughs> they far eclipsed what I feel like I've accomplished. But you know, like these guys went on, and we were chasing early pros that were like Bob Klein was an early Burton pro at Buttermilk, and then like Jeff Grell, the guy that claims you know like he he's kind of an early early claimer of inventing the high back for the snowboard binding. And Chris Carroll, who worked tirelessly to open snowboard snowboarding two resorts. like I, Those guys would write letters to the GMs and be like, hey, we have lee straps and we're trained to make left and right turns and stop on command and please allow us to snowboard. And when Aspen opened, they actually had like a big buttermilk. They chose buttermilk. Aspen Mountain kind of stayed like Alta for a while. And they wouldn't allow snowboarding. But Buttermilk, they had this big opening. And they invited um, the school to come out. And they had um, Steve Link, who was the stunt double with Tom Sims in the James Bond movie. Yeah, so Steve Link shows up in his, like, Bogner one piece on a handmade board. And he was he was actually instrumental in making joyride snowboards in Frisco back in the day and, the, and that was like Dale Rayberg and all the um, like rad early Breckenridge riders because uh, link was they had a, they had a press and they had an autoclave and they were like making snowboards in Frisco and so when that happened, snowboarding was real. The GM of Aspen Ski Company, his daughter was my girlfriend and she was a snowboarder. So she would go back to her dad and be like, Snowboarding's cool. And he'd be like, Okay, cool. Yeah, like I can accept that. And he ended up moving on to like Bear Mountain. So he knew, like, he knew that snowboarding was going to be good for the industry and he didn't shut it down. Could you imagine Southern California without snowboarding? Or being like closing it like Alta and being like, no, you don't make the right kind of moguls. Parks came out of some. I, I know a lot of people like to claim that they were the first park builders, um, but I'm gonna like lay something out here. There's a dude named Travis Eva, who worked in Southern California, and he has pictures and stories of being like the guy that got the early park cats and he pushed the snow into place and he was the one who was like the grooming manager that said, this is important. This, this is what needs to be done. I know Mike Perillo and uh, some of the early park builders really benefited from having a open-minded grooming manager. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to Travis Eva for being uh, an early acceptor of enhanced terrain you know like he was willing to be like oh, let's build a snake run and then you can find your little tony hawk gaps
0: and i yeah so whether you're first or whether you're down the line i think the advocation component the believing in something that well really the believing in that something can't happen you can't you've termed it i i love it it's the imagineering goggles you have to be able to like yeah. take those off every once in a while to Present, piece together, and really not get offended when somebody says no. Maybe elaborate on that for us. Well,
1: that I mean, if you if you make a presentation and you're just like, "This is going to be the sickest thing ever," and you get told no, it's because your imagineering goggles weren't tuned in. You know, like you didn't make a good enough presentation, and you didn't have the numbers or the vision to explain it because there was too many like dudes and fucking fuck yes in your presentation instead of like hey this is going to increase our sales by 20% on this weekend.
0: Yeah, that would be a much better way of saying it. I would not go down the route of, yeah, so everybody that's listening, don't present data with dudes and fuck yes.
1: I would like to just start out and say that I have made every mistake there is. Like I I own it. Like I own being too passionate in my job or not understanding of other departments needs or like literally like just too obstinate to actually make the few little corrections that would have turned into really incredible programs because I was just that, you know, like skate park, obstinate punk fuck in a terrain park manager position. And I, I borrowed, begged, stole as much as I could in order to push it forward. And you know, feel like it it that hurt me because it it wasn't like really all that genuine, where you're just like so focused on getting something done that it doesn't matter where the inspiration came from. There's no credit for the people that paved the way to get you there. And, you know, like, I, I feel like I was totally guilty of just being playing catch up and shortcutting and trying to get things done because other people had it.
0: Yeah. And you can't use and this is you cannot use passion as an excuse for why you fucked up. If you're that passionate and you care that much, then you're going to go, yep, I, I'll i own that. I fucked up there for sure. One hundred percent. I will not back down from my wrongdoing there. But it can be such a double-edged sword. If you don't manage that emotion correctly, you can quickly find yourself in a position where you're having to backpedal, cover up shit, fix things, mend relationships, all because you're just emotionally excited to do a job. Now, don't get me wrong. like Passion is definitely a part of how you can succeed, but I think your point's really good. I know I, just, I ranted there for just a second, but um, yeah, admitting your failures first is super important. Just so that that's how you can move on. Um, I think too quickly, well, however long it's going to take you, but I want to know how you got started. I want to know where you got in the machine, how you got interested in that. Maybe go there for us. Talk about that.
1: Uh, Okay, we didn't talk about this, but my first experience with the machine was actually in Jackson Hole. and It it came in the form of a phone call at 2.30 in the morning. and. My hero, Renyon Diarge, who that you might all kind of heard about is the, the kind of the construction mastermind behind the recent natural selection. But he called me at 2.30 in the morning and he's like, hey, um, I'm building a, uh, like a snake run, snowboard cross. Do you want to come up and help me out? Literally called me at 2.30, woke me up. And I walked up, snow came, and he was stuck. <laughs> He was stuck on a turn <laughs> and we had to really? dig the cat out. <laughs> no
0: way. <laughs> oh my God. He was like high centered on a berm. Wow. So it was more or less just like, hey, I need you right now. You should come up and check this out. I don't know what you're doing. It's super early in the morning. It's like two or three, something like that. Come yeah. In- oh, yeah. By the two way, we got to dig the out. Yeah, yeah. you want to
1: come up? <laughs> I'm in the cat. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Like he was so good at operating the machine already for what he had. Like he was driving like an old thirty-seven hundred D handled LMC, and uh, I don't know if that was the vehicle, but you know, it was like it was one of those things where you're just like so outgunned, and for what you're trying to do, and the joy of creating an event for the local snowboard shop, skateboard shop. We just like, we never slept. Like we built this whole thing and he inspired me. He was just like, I know you've built pipes and jumps at summer camp and you need to come up and help me out and figure this out. And that that turned into like an amazing story. I mean, like just being thrown the keys And I think a lot of people can kind of understand, like, if you can catch the keys, you can groom type of start to it. And and it's, it's just so not productive. It's so nobody showed you how to turn or clean up your turnarounds or anything like that. Like, we were flailing. We were totally flailing, but we totally overcame it with sheer joy and stoke for what we were building
0: yeah that's probably that's the best way to put it i think flailing you know a lot of people that i've talked to on the show have definitely had either experience in alpine flat tracking uh mainline um fleet grooming whatever you want to call it and you <laughs> did you didn't have any of that it was just here you go
1: come get it at midnight uh,
0: okay yeah yeah crazy man yeah. Was there, was there ever any kind of initial training with equipment elsewhere, whether it was dirt or, uh, you know, kind of excavation, dozer, whatever that looked like? If it was around the Aspen area or somewhere else, was there exposure? I don't to know. That?
1: Like, people talk about their first job, like setting them off on their career path. And my first job was mowing an l- aircraft landing strip for an ultralight with like a push mower that had like rear wheel drive wheels and, in a in the basically a horse pasture. And so I would mow this runway. And by the time I got it wide enough, the grass had grown on the other side and I'd have to start over. And so I just, I started out with like that, that mowing the lawn. I like, this is normal like, type of deal. I was 14 and I was pushing a mower, like, literally quarter of a mile and then turning around and mowing back to where I started. And that was, you know, that was just part of the the farm and ranch. I don't know. I just, I grew up outside and it it was one of those things where machines to me were a treat. It was such a treat to get to ride the three-wheeler between the irrigation gates. And, of course, I ruined it. I crashed it, hit fence posts, and rolled it down hills and, uh, you know, like, brought it back with the broken pieces on it. And, and the you know, the farmers would just be like, you fix it. And so I had to, you know, like, I literally, out of sheer terror, had to educate myself on how to fix the brake cable on a Yamaha three-wheeler uh, or change tires or whatever it was that I'd screwed up. So you know, like, I grew up with like a guilt <laughs> of breaking stuff.
0: Yeah, and, and the other um, side of that story too is that so with you growing up around the opportunity to be around equipment, uh, whatever it was, and, and then two, the professional rider that you were too, like you were being paid to snowboard, but you were also around some pretty amazing. Uh, other snowboarders too, some profound people that definitely had an impact on the industry back then. But if you were to, I want to know too, if you were to describe your career in pro snowboarding career in one word, what would that be? And then maybe expand on that and let us in on that, that story.
1: I was a lemming. I got paid. I got paid to jump off of shit and I got paid. It was cool. Like I, like that's a whole nother story of how I ended up being paid to snowboard, but I I rode for Nectar snowboards out uh, Southern California. Um and then I I rode for Moro for two weeks. Yeah, they were awesome. Like I still have like some like fond memories of how good those boards work, but they just would break. And they kept they stopped like, they cut me off. They are like, no, sorry man. You break too many boards. And I, I really wasn't trying to. I wasn't like bashing them on things or anything and they just like riding and they would just like snap between my feet. But I ended up uh I ended up having a pretty cool career because I was really infatuated with riding halfpipe. That was that was where careers were made in like the early 90s. Snowboarding gave me the world. Like it 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 literally paid for me to have first descents in Alaska, to go to Russia and heli-ski, to ski all over Europe. And I say ski, I mean snowboard, but fuck it. Ski is ski. And to meet my heroes and to literally just soak it in and chase the pout.
0: Okay, JP, before we get too far along in this, I definitely want to jump into the push road question of the day. So let's roll that intro. The push road question of the day. Yep. And so, JP, ready or not, I'm going to play it for you now. And it's from Eric Rosenwald.
1: Over your career, you've done so many interesting things in the snow sports industry. But I think the craziest, fascinating thing you've done was working for the railroads on Donner Summit that one year. What was the sketchiest, gnarliest, hairball situation you saw that winter? Because I saw some pictures, and it was nuts. (laughs) Rosie, I fucking love Eric Rosenwald.
0: Amazing dude. Miss that guy. Eric, if you're tuned in right now, I hope you are at least just relaxing. Miss you, man. Hope all is well. What do you think, JP? It was just good to hear his voice. Um, I am one of like
1: a handful of people that have gone through railroad training. And for the past 40 years, Donner Summit has cleared snow. From the railroad track right away uh, with bulldozers, and this uh, guy Matt Saley from my time at Squaw Valley has convinced them that a eight or nine mile an hour snowcat is a more efficient system than a two mile an hour snowcat. So, anyways, there's about 26 miles of track on Donner Summit, which is one of the biggest, heaviest snow areas. Um, the year that I worked there, was an 800-inch winter, and we'd actually waited two years to get a chance to like drive a cat near the railways, which um, are pretty much the most stressful job I've ever had in my life because the freight trains come up and down Donner Summit and when those trains don't run the Union Pacific loses a million dollars a day in profit plus the uh when the Amtrak doesn't run they they lose like 25 million dollars a month in stipends from the government so that that pass has to be open. And Matt Saley figured out that if he got a six hundred and push snow, he could basically open the doors to a new business for a guy who was just he was a he was like the special projects guy at Squaw. And he hired me and we had to go through all the Union Pacific training down in Sacramento and it was like it was eye-opening to railroad safety because the Amtrak trains travel at 45 miles an hour over Donner Summit, which is a pretty big climb and a pretty big descent. And they can sneak up on you pretty quick. So when we first started, we had a a rail yard like switchman uh, sitting shotgun. And he would be in cellular radio and internet connectivity with the dispatch back in North Dakota, wherever hell they were like Union Union Pacific um, dispatch was watching the rails over Donner summit from like Nebraska or like North Dakota or something like that. And they could tell those tracks are like electrically charged. They could tell, That if you connected with the track, that you fouled the track and it would stop all trains across like the Midwest. It was a big deal. And it was a, if you literally touched it with your grouser and it was a hot track, you could stop emergency stop trains like literally from like Denver to Davis, California, or like all the way to the port city. And uh, we had like, we had no idea what we we're doing other than that we love to hog snow. And the snow cats just with the ability to wing snow and open a wing and just haul ass really um, changed the game. Change the game of snow removal on uh, snow-covered passes for railways. I mean, we ended up clearing – um, we ended up clearing a rail yard that had sixteen sideways on it, like um, you have the the two tracks going north and south, and then like all these different parking lots of for trains. And we were able to clear three feet of snow off of the rails in two days in this rail yard. And the funny thing was is they had sent a plow train down from like Oregon. And by the time the plow train got there, we had we had the done, we'd done the job in 16 hours. I mean like, and sending that train down took 24 hours just to get there. So the railroad was like, this is incredible. We've never seen anything like this. They actually hired somebody to like do a live drone feed of us working on Donner Summit so they could actually see what we were doing. Because every time the train goes by, all the bulldozers that they had used in the past, and they would have like between five and fifteen yellow iron D like D six to D eight bulldozers pushing snow away from the the track because that's how they'd done it for forty years. And between me and Matt and the snowcats, we were able to do like something like 16 miles of track with two vehicles and it became a war like the it <laughs> the bulldozer dudes <laughs> hated us they hated us they were i like, was
0: gonna say they probably hated you man
1: 40 years yeah. of like, and those guys were on like such a gravy train like they were like start the clock they would punch in in sacramento and drive all the way up to summit like the donner summit and then warm up their machines and fuel them up and like they'd get like 3 hours of work done a day and we were we would start at like 6:30 in the morning and work 12-hour days and we were between the two vehicles we had like a an old bison and a a Detroit diesel 300 piston bully and we were able to like clear more track in a day and move faster. Plus, we were like showing these guys up. You know, like every time a train came by, the law was you had to be 19 feet from the rail and we could keep moving. But those guys were so big that they had to like back all the way up and drive onto the line and set their dozer blade down and they could move a lot of snow but they just couldn't keep moving while the trains were going by. So we would listen to the radio chatter, which was coming in like from the dispatch in Union Pacific headquarters, and we knew when to like get out of the way. And it was, I mean, I think that Eric asked what the most terrifying point was, was going through the tunnels, driving our cats on the rails like literally like grousers on steel and the tunnels are 17 feet wide so if you know your cat you know what what the closed wing width is and they're like blasted tunnels they're not like smooth concrete and they're curved and they have ice ice humps in them I think the second gnarliest part of it was crossing all of the bridges because basically the Union Pacific was like, when you need to drive on the tracks, you drive on the tracks. So grousers, if you break a grouser, it doesn't matter. Just bill us for it. And I think I broke like 300 grousers that winter. A million dollars a day profit versus 300 grousers. Like I was snapping grousers because you're driving on the railroad tracks and literally crossing bridges like 200 foot followways and no handrails or anything and I mean Donner Summit is it's a really really busy rail line because all of the uh, port city of like San Francisco Davis uh, everything that took port and put it on the rail had to go through or summit and so those trains were everywhere they were i mean it was like amazing to watch the plow trains they have like a 23 foot wing that stick out the side and the rams on it are like 16 inches in diameter and it's like pushing sierra cement but all of a sudden this train goes by and pushes a 12 15 foot windrow because the engines weigh like 800,000 pounds. I mean, it was one day when we this train came out of the tunnel at Sugar Bowl and literally high-centered the engines. The engines weigh 800,000 pounds each, have 16-inch pistons, diesel-powered, and they high-centered the train.
0: No way. You know how you fix that? No idea how.
1: You <laughs> just crawl underneath the shovels and dig it out. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that. Um, So I think we stay on this topic for a little bit, but just high stress level, crazy job. Like, if you don't know what you're doing, you're screwed.
1: I mean, when when you're not listening to radio chatter and you're not used to the radio, you would probably get hit by a train. But if you've been at a resort and you're, you're able to tune it out but hear what's going on is a huge part of of that job i mean it was that job paid so well (laughs) like i got like danger pay it was like so union it was like snow time pay and eight hours a day and then double time triple time and
0: i was gonna say how much does a job like that pay i'd want to know only only because Uh, you're high risk and you're just doing what you can do based on the knowledge you got, but you're still learning a new craft, kind of a process, but it's got to be more than the $16 an hour skiers
1: are $56 an hour.
0: (laughs) Holy shit, man. Like you wouldn't even need to work during the summer. I don't think
1: 12 hours a day, seven days a week, dodging trains. We started making our own roads with the cat. And then we could just like the line never needed to be fouled by a snowcat going through the tunnel, and the train people thought that was amazing. They were just like, "Oh, we don't have to slow down for fifteen bulldozers to drive through." Like they drive bulldozers right on the tracks because an engine weighs eight hundred thousand pounds. A dozer isn't going to do shit to the to the rails. I mean, that was that winter was so big. It was the year they brought out the the rotary plow. For the first time in like 12 years, the thing sat in mothballs and that rotary plow was amazing. It had like this 14 foot wide mouth that was, it was all steam train and it would like self clean the rotary with steam, but then it would shoot like a snowblower, like 300 feet in the air. So it was like self-cleaning and snow-eating snowblower that like, you've never seen before in your life. Like it, it literally like when it, I got to this point where I, I the thing had to go by me and I didn't know what to do because I I couldn't like hide from it and I just had to let the thing throw snow on me and I was worried it was going to break all my windows. So I like positioned the cat like at an angle I thought would like take the last least amount of like. Snow damage and somehow none of my windows got broke. But that winter was insane.
0: What a story! I think that's, I mean, wow. Uh, thank you, Eric, for asking that question. Big shout out to you, man. And JP, thanks for letting us in on that. That's wow, that was an incredible story, dude. That was awesome. Thanks for sharing. Um, and I think real quick, and it doesn't have to be real quick, I guess, but let's talk about what your maybe version of success would be outside of the ski area operating a snowcat because it's not like a snowcat is single faceted there's so many different applications that you can put that machine into and have it do exactly what it's supposed to do move material manage material uh, take care of a product offering or mitigate something either way it's a useful piece of equipment. So I'd be interested to know kind of like your take on maybe two things, the general stoke of obviously the joy of obviously operating that equipment and then maybe how it is, it can be successful out operating outside the ski area.
1: Um, I, I I do that a lot. Like I, I it's, it's overwhelming to think about um, how much joy operating a machine can bring because 90% of the operators out there in the world don't have the fulfillment that we do in a machine. Like literally like sunset, sunrise, deep pow, tight tree runs, fog, like all these things just never happen with most operators. And I think the best way to describe it was when the operators union out of Reno came up to uh, Donner Summit in Boreal to try and get the cat drivers into the union and unionize cat drivers, like back in the early '90s, and they they rode around with my hero, my true like I think my favorite person to say that taught me the most was this guy named Johnny Auger, who created Jabasic Park. And this union representative rode around with this guy with a 10-way blade and literally went, okay, there's nothing we can do here. What you guys are doing is far more complex than anything we can quantitate and um, include in our Operators union. And so there's a pride in being in that machine that should be your own. I mean, it should be a job well done and a run finished efficiently and ultimately, you know, like fun. You know, it, it's not about how flat you make it because some runs don't need to be flat. And it's not about um, how fast you do it because you leave shitty grooming, or also doesn't move. You know, matter about how much snow you move because you're spending too much diesel. Uh, and so, finding that real pride in being a professional is this never-ending pursuit that takes years to become an operator instead of a driver. Like you're when you're an operator, it's like you're concerned about fuel consumption, you're concerned about machine wear, you're concerned about product, you're concerned about fun. Like that's what we're ultimately trying to do is like make it fun for people to ski and then make it consistent
0: yeah because the number one thing that you're concerned about when you're out there is the is the surface you're taking care of and you're managing the number one product offering that is out there for everybody to enjoy, so when that's happening, there's got to be some level of pride of stoke uh, accountability that's happening there, and so yeah, I agree like you're you're not only paying attention to one thing you're paying attention to several things so it's
1: just pride in your product like beef. yeah. And whether, you know, like Brandon talked about um, the smallest features. And I had a big battle with that in, in parks. I actually really kind of keyed into that thing. And Burton, Burton Snowboards paid for me to fly to Japan to teach resorts how to build, learn to ride terrain. Because that small feature is basically impossible to see out of the cat. You've got a 22-foot-long machine trying to build eight-foot rollers. You know, it's like, how do I do this with this big square machine and build all these little snake runs and things like that? Brandon was dead on when he talked about putting your best operator on those little features because it takes the greatest amount of skill. And anybody that feels... Like they're being demeaned by saying, Hey, can you go do the Panda Peak? Can you go do the Eagles Rest or the you know, the Junior Slope? It's like that should be a badge of honor because you're actually more skilled than their average person.
0: Okay, so let's let's talk about that. You were you were literally given opportunities. I mean you were. You were whether it's you view it as timing or being in the right place, whatever it was. You were definitely given opportunities kind of along the lines of what you were just talking about with that badge of honor. You're ex- you should be excited to do something like that. You've accomplished things in your career like there are definitely the job titles, the manager position at uh, Jackson Hole, Squaw Valley. Um, I, I, I think that those are key probably development components for you. But because you mentioned your failures and kind of messing up a lot along the way. What was maybe the one component of either building foundation or a, a construction of anything snow wise that was the beginning for you
1: hand digging half pipes um, that was that was like pure joy twenty dudes hand digging a pipe in a day like the they would snow cat would come in and box you a trench and you had to make it into a half pipe and that was like. The most sunburned and dehydrated and happy work ever. But it all grew. Like, it grew year after year. Like, summer camps, High Cascade. I worked at High Cascade. And I I worked my way up from, like, begging Digger at Camp of Champions and Whistler. When there was, like, the Camp of Champions and the Craig Kelly camp right next to each other. To... Being the assistant camp manager at Camp of Champions. So, like, I have always wanted to be a part of the success of an operation. I wanted to see it, I want to see it thrive because it goes back to what I started with being like, I wanted the recognition of progression, profitability, and popularity. You know, and I
0: like should we just call those the the 3 Ps or P cubed? However you want to term it. And man, those are pretty big ones.
1: Okay, but here's the deal. Like like my biggest dream was to work for SPT and those guys and it took me 10 years to realize that I was the problem. Like I I wanted nothing I wanted nothing more to be like a SPT crew dude. Like I thought they were the raddest and I was just like that is the epitome of of what we're doing. But what I realized was I never fit in because I was such a kook. Like, I was I was like the guy that was willing to beg, borrow, and steal all of their secret ideas to make myself better or my product better, and they all saw it and I didn't. I didn't, I had no clue. I had no fucking idea that I was such a kook because I was just this dude who was like running on Overstoke and. Willing to like completely copy totally proprietary systems for my own benefit. And then I realized I was like, wait a minute, I'm like the, I'm like the, the, just the, the lamest dude out there. (laughs) You know, like I, I had to like look back and look at myself and take onus for not really having any original ideas because I was constantly copying. What the people that I looked up to were doing, and that's, that's the honest truth.' It's like there was no way I was going to be an SBT guy because there was no I wasn't trustworthy. I wasn't dedicated, I wasn't one of them. I was just a guy that was like so stoked to have a little bit of everything that I really didn't have a plan. So working at all those resorts, I was constantly trying to reinvent the wheel instead of following what what needed to be done, and that completely led to my end, my eventual like complete implosion from working eighteen-hour days for ten plus years, fifteen years, like fifteen years. 15 years into building, I was done. I was, I was so cooked. I was,
0: were you obsessed with just being in control? Was it, was it kind of like a micromanaging component where you weren't really investing in your team? Where did, did you always have to kind of have your thumb on things, a pulse on things? Maybe you were backseat driving. I don't know, but I, I mean, I can understand kind of where you're coming from just from the stories you're telling, but what, maybe unpack that.
1: It, I think it was a little bit of both. Like I, had this insatiable ego for, Oh, we got this contest or this photo shoot, or we were able to pull off this event, but really what it came down to was I wanted my crews to really like learn to work and, and have that same fire and like, It worked. I have to this day I have friendships of people who are out of the industry and have moved away all over the country who are like, hey man, thanks, you taught me how to work. And I appreciate that because I'm successful in what I'm doing now. And that's pretty cool. But you know, like I I really had like a mixture of ego major like asshole ego unbendable will uh and the obsessive compulsiveness of of like the small town kid trying to prove himself that eventually led to me just like completely imploding because you just it's not you can't burn the candle at both ends for that long without like like you can't. Like there are people who try with chemicals, and there are people that try different ways to to remain on top. Whether it's becoming really ruthless in their biz- business endeavors, or really like weirdo drug addict meth heads, or they just burn out and leave. They're just like I'm done, I'm done it. My passion has burned it thin and I'm, I'm out. I don't have any more. Dave Franzen and Jay Ridd at Kingville were huge influences because they had like the mechanical and the marketing and the skill and the savvy. Like they were just like oozing with style. You know, and like Ryan Neptune with Planet Snow Tools, he made rakes and rails that were amazing you know like I wanted that like I wanted to know what the plastic what what do you call the plastic that you put on your rails you know like I was always inspired by the people that I met along the way and I would keep going I mean Jackson Hole they threw me the keys to BR2000 and they were like take it out for a rip we got the demo here (laughs) and my my lead mechanic was Jeb Ellermeyer who works for uh piston bully now. And, and it's like, do you know how to drive that thing? I'm like, Nope. How do you turn it on? <laughs> you know, just like, like so many of those things, so many of those like experiences going to Mount hood and watching Jeff flood push like 16 to 20 blade stacks of wet snow downhill with a 350 me And like what's an me like it was two sticks between your legs and it was the gnarliest pushing cat ever like jeff flood got it you know and steve Cruz, the mountain manager was willing to buy him and custom make a cat to push features into place on the glacier you know logan stewart teaching me how to drive around in the fog, the operations manager at hood. I mean, they're just like so thankful for the people that I got to hang with. I mean, in all honesty, it was like just flailing around blindly going, what do you guys do? What do you guys do? And it, I mean, it was obvious that I was really trying too hard, but I learned so much. I learned so much from those people and I was just insatiable. like. Every time I got to sit in the passenger seat, I took it. And if you're like honestly, the one dude I never got to ever 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 see move a cat was Elliot Cole Like that guy did shit with a snow cat, uh, beef. Like just I I saw the final results. I mean, I went to Super Park and Keystone, and i just went, who built that? I'd be like, Elliot built that. I'd be like. I have no idea how he even did that. Like, that is a piece of, that. that is insane. Like, amazing. I mean, going way back, like, Johnny Auger building Jabassic Park at Boreal single-handedly and then having the best stories ever of being, like, one of the most rock star park builders ever because he, he was sponsored by the strip clubs in Reno. And like the strippers would drive up to boreal and ride around with him half naked in his cat, well, probably fully naked anyways, that's the p g story of Johnny auger.
0: I do think it's yeah man I mean those are some crazy stories, but at the same token, like I do think it's great that you're willing to acknowledge the fact that you didn't um you didn't have it all together, you know, you had to piece it back together after you fucked up, um trying to be somebody you weren't. And you realized that. And so you were able to kind of treasure the relationships that you made. You looked up to the people that you met and you took some advice away from all that. I mean, that's huge. That's just, that's really big. But um, one of the, you you mentioned hood. One of the things that I'm just trying to always, I'm always down to talk about Mount Hood, but what was one of the biggest things that you took away from working at Mount Hood? It could be anything or anybody that you were around. I know you dropped a few names, but what was
1: that? Uh Patience, really. I mean, you're you're dealing with like this snowpack that is so condensed and it's like the purest form of snowmaking snow. But you're also running in these ravines where if you get out of line, you're just like right into the rocks. And your whole park could melt out and the middle of summer camp is ruined because you didn't have the right line. And they have done an amazing job of GPSing and pushing the electronic systems and cats for knowing your whereabouts and your snow depth that everybody kind of freaked out when it first came out. They're like, well, big brother's going to know that I'm taking a two hour nap on my grooming shift, you know? And it's like, That's not the point. The point was it was built to be a tool and then the conspiracy theorists took over or the fucking lazy bastards that were taking a two-hour, three-hour nap on their shift instead of working the day through. Like, I don't know a park guy that takes a nap. Like, I don't because there's never enough time in the day. And so being at Mount Hood – you're, you're learning to move, manipulate snow, you're building bridges, you're stacking snow efficiently and really symmetrically, uh, because the melt freeze there will show your shortcuts. <laughs> like if you don't pack enough snow into the sunny side of a rail, Thing will fall over by three o'clock in the afternoon.
0: Yeah, well, I want to know too, just because we're. I mean, dude, I'm not, like I'm always up for talking about Mountain Hood because there's so much history there, and you know, you had the opportunity to work there, be around some pretty profound individuals that were making impacts. I want to know if you got a good flood out story because that man was definitely revolutionary when it came to not only advocating for the education component, but advocating for just what the future of park programs and features will be
1: he was the, the grooming manager that like realized how much of an impact summer freestyle terrain could make for the mountain because they were at that point they were completely in. they were so reliant on ski clubs coming to run gates on the upper palmer but they had all this extra terrain down below that was kind of flat and Boundaried by rock ravines. And he really helped push freestyle terrain by being like, yeah, we need to make a 70-foot jump. Cause mm-hmm. nobody else can. <laughs> at their resort. You know like Yeah, I mean, like, he would push all the snow out of the half pipe and then have this giant mound at the bottom of the half pipe, which made a nice place to like stop and take your bindings off, but then all of a sudden they realized that they had just built a landing for a hundred foot kicker.
0: All right. Based on that realization comment, I'm going to pivot here, JP. I got a question from Trevor Borelli and it's kind of along that realization um, terminology you use there, but uh, I think it's great. It's if you were to build a park grooming department, what five operators would you want and why? And I think it's along the lines of either names or personality types. I think you could take that either way. So, however you want to unwrap that for us, that would be awesome. And thanks Trevor for the question, man.
1: Well, like, like immediately, I just come up with five. Like I'm like you have the builder and then number 2 is the finisher. Number 3 would be um the documenter. Number 4 would be the devil's advocate, and number five would be the rookie. And I, you know, I can kind of expand on that because I wrote an article about it in Sam Ski Area Management Magazine on the seven personalities of a park crew. And many of those are the same, but it's like you have to have the person with the vision for the park, and it doesn't have to be entirely the park manager and it shouldn't be, you know, like the park manager is the manager, but if you don't give ownership to the builders and make them actually honestly present you with a plan, then you're going to wake up with a 70 foot jump in the parking lot on Saturday morning and the GM is going to freak out. So if it's not pre-planned and vetted and run by, you know, maybe even the veteran is like the the devil's advocate. You know, like he's like, oh, we built that jump there and everybody ends up sliding into the trees. Great idea, wrong place. Great shape, love it. Everybody ends up sliding into the trees in the spring. You know, like just save it for uh, another place. Um, you've got to have the rookie because they won't ever learn and progress. Uh, and they won't see it being done. You got to have the, um, you know, like the perfectionist who will be like, yeah, cool, but your, all your jumps are out of line. Like you can't ski from jump one to jump two without making a big turn, which is going to turn into braking bumps and ruin the flow of these features because the first one's too big you know, like tone it down and make the second one bigger. You know, like there's there's a definite balance of like the full on guy who's just frothing to build the most incredible features you've ever seen to the rookie who is just like, how the hell did you stack the snow that high? And how how did you not... Dig it down to dirt in the in run in the process because that's what happens when you have these guys who are like the builders. They're just like they steal snow from wherever's closest and they ruin the longevity of the, of the park. Having those personalities and the cats as well as on your crew is, you know, that's part of customer service. You're you're building something for the lowest common denominator, but you're also trying to build something that is fun and it's not necessarily the biggest feature, but it's also comes down to creativity and flow and, and, and usage usability of those features. So that's a tough question. Like how do you hire for that? Um,
0: yeah. See now we're blade diving, man. Now we're deep blade diving. All right, let's switch gears and pivot again and go back to like the second half of that possibility of an answer. Who would your top 5 people be? Who or maybe even 5 people. It doesn't even have to be the top 5 operators in the world. Just who would your 5 people be?
1: Like the king of king of name dropping and now I'm going I'm dry, I'm, draw, I'm I'm drawing a blank. But you know what? No, it's it's,
0: it's um, co- well, how about this? Just pick one. Pick one person. Just pick one person instead of five. Let's just let's just pick one individual you would want on your team.
1: I I enjoy having a little bit of a, a maverick uh, in the in the mix, because they push the boundaries. So, um, I mean, Charles Beckinsale is the maverick, and he knows what it's like to be like the fucking uh, brunt of the worst possible situation, which is having the mechanics think that they are purposely destroying machines. So, I mean, Charles Charles had an experience at Squaw where he drove a cat from its parking spot into the um, into the mechanics. Like, he checked it out and he was like, hey, there's something's wrong with this. And they immediately blamed him for the seven cracks in the frame that they found on, like, a 18,000-hour cat. And, like, Charles, like, literally like he got blamed for ruining a cat and it had nothing to do with him.
0: All right. So along the lines of that blame claim and shame piece, you were talking about what type of leadership and vulnerability components does a manager have to have in order to see a successful team building experience for the department? What do you think that looks like?
1: I call it the triangles. Um, And, and they're, It's the strongest form, right? So I I think that there needs to be, from a manager, there needs to be clear communication of what was going on or what needs to be done. And then from the employee worker side, there needs to be a clear explanation of what their intention was. And then there needs to be an agreement on the third leg of the triangle of what the result was. And that way you can build this conversation in any of those directions and you can start on any side of that triangle and be like, I gave you a job. What was your intention? Here's the results. Or you can say, here's the results. What was your intention? What was the job I gave you? Or you can say, what were you setting out to do? This is what you built, but what did I tell you to do? And once you do that consistently, you take a lot of the emotion out of hurting people's good intentions.
0: Yeah, I think I like that. Um, I don't know that people's intentions are always good, uh, but I do know that even if they are bad, they can be circumvented, navigated just solely based on communication. You know,
1: well, it simplifies it, and it's kind of like a uh, it's a it's a way for conflict avoidance in your communication if you're consistent with it. Where you're like, here's the job, here are the boundaries, and here is the goal. And that's communication from the manager. Like, you need to be clear in what needs to be done. Giving the worker the ownership to get that done should be fully autonomous. Like, am I going to start building this thing from the bottom because all the snow has been pushed? Downhill for the last two months. That's their decision because they should be paying attention to where the snow is. They should have the intention of completing your communication with good results. You may have thought, oh, they're just going to push downhill all night and it'll be done in two hours. And they're like, no. All of the snow is down below that feature. If you want that feature built, I'm it's going to take twice as long because I'm going to have to winch it up or I'm going to have to push it up and teaspoon it into place but once people start talking that way it takes out of those butthurt feelings of like being called out in front of people for bad results
0: (laughs) you know yeah yeah, i I, i'm picking up what you're putting down man for sure maybe the um let's get past like the intention and maybe that you've got that dialed and maybe you've got a tenured individual or somebody that's interested for the first time but how do you maintain a career a positive impactful career in the ski industry snow industry rather
1: maintaining your career is by setting boundaries on what you're willing to do uh, and finding a place that will accept that. Because uh, I think I was talking about like the ski industry is a sprint that is a year round business, but really only has a short window to make money. So they just, they'll, they'll burn you out if you aren't well planned or willing to say no. And that that longevity comes from pre-planning being articulate and documenting a a winter season is hard on everybody um, mentally and physically and the funny thing is like the guys at, at Mount Hood go 10 months out of the year like that like there's no break and so You got to learn to pace yourself, uh, like, and the only way to pace it is to plan it, and so that everybody knows. On the crew, hey, like I said before, like, don't spend all your money at the bar, and then wonder April first why you don't have a job, or yeah, totally why you don't have any money saved up, or you can't make it into. June when your next seasonal job starts, like plan ahead and communicate that with people.
0: You know, this is something that we haven't really covered on the show. um I think that, the, so it doesn't matter if you're a groomer, if you're a, if you're a, in the fleet or you're in the park, but a job in general and how much ever you put into it is, yeah, what you'll get out of it for sure. But if you're not, putting enough credits into the life column and you're debiting so many things from just the job and the job really becomes what you're consuming. I have, I have, I have been there. Um, just riding along in the machine, whether I'm doing that or whether I'm just working crazy hours. I remember there was actually a quick story. There was a shift where Alex Storjahan and I literally fucking worked 24 hours to make sure that Sammy Carlson's wall was done. And then the next week after that, we had Super Park. I mean, there are things that you are responsible for that you've got to commit to. I get that. But you've got to take care of yourself at the end of the day. And you've got to have a plan for what that looks like. And so you're still getting paid the same dollar amount, no matter how long you work.
1: I call it, yeah, I call it life as a series, series of linked recoveries.
0: Damn, that's good, dude. I like that. I you like know, that. Like you catch
1: an edge and then you point it, and you still make the the sweet spot on the next jump or whatever it is. Like you roll down the windows on the first jump, and you don't think you're going to make the next one, but you waxed good. And you know, like linked recoveries, man. You're just like you're committed.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like managing the chaos, or I like to kind of put it as you know, you're making music out of the noise that life provides sometimes. Uh, drowning out the negativity i know that's maybe glass half empty perspective with whether or not there may be noise coming your way but at any rate you're definitely dealing with challenges and i think that they can be hard sometimes and and especially if you're maybe over committed into a job and you're not really putting back like i mentioned anything into the life column of uh, checks and balances but I wanna know, JP, maybe when a, a a deep blade dive in life um maybe happened to you and you kinda of had to figure out a way to, to get back in it and either find the love for the and the passion for the industry that you once had that was real and organic, or um if you weren't able to really get out of that at all and you kinda of had to figure out um what, what getting out and back to grade looked like.
1: <laughs> those, those are like the hardest fixes. Um It's usually springtime, Uh, I'll say that, and it's because you're tired. And for me, it it was managing three shifts. You know, like you got the day, swing, and grave. And I was so obsessed with the overall production that I would be there from like 5.30 in the morning till one in the morning.
0: Yeah, that's that's heavy. That's a that's a long one, man. Right, and it's like you you go in at five
1: thirty in the morning, and you, cat, you know, you get a snowmobile, and you drive up to the park, and you go jump in a cat with the graveyard boys, and girls that are, um, trying to get the park open for public, and you're just like downloading their night, and then transferring that to the day crew. Hey guys, we got a really big turn rut that we got to rake out or you know like you're that's it's really hard to balance and working those like 18 hour days consistently for 15 years i ended up like completely imploding like literally to the point where i was incapable to do my summer job and didn't know if I was going to go back for a, another winner. Mm. Like hated it. I hated it. I was like, it's like so unthankful and nobody's paying attention to us. And all of a sudden you just get into this victim thing and instead of being thankful for what you have and what you've accomplished, you get stuck on, oh, I got to go back and do it all over again. And I actually like that crushed me. I broke my spirit as a park builder after letting myself be so disorganized that I wasn't able to like work a eight or 10 hour or 12 hour day that, you know, it was like a, it was like a a mental breakdown of the worst kind because you're actually physically done from so many years of burning the candle at both ends and nothing's fun anymore. Like I had six snowmobile. I lived in a great place to go out and I had no interest in like free riding, taking my sled out and climbing into the backcountry. country. Uh, you know, it was just like lost all that zest for, For what I was doing, because I had pushed it so hard and pushed it to the point where my family was suffering, my career was suffering, my motivation, my creativity, even my attitude, my like just outward vibes were dark. You know, like people would just distance themselves from you. And you're like, I'm working my ass off. Like, how come you guys can't fucking respect that? And it's like, well, you're putting off this black cloud like Eeyore. And people see it coming. And I totally, totally lived that. Like, I totally went through it. I went through it. And the only way for me to come out of it was to find something that I could do that I was somewhat successful at and just go back to the basics so I spent a winter on graveyard grooming cross-country
0: trails wow dude I didn't I didn't know you went did that that's yeah that's pretty cool it had to have been difficult that is
1: like the hardest job there is it's so it's so hard like I I I the where I was grooming was like pretty fancy spot and um the trails were like a bowl of spaghetti and putting those track setters up and down so that people weren't skiing into walls was like the new challenge in a Mm -hmm. cat and driving through those skinny little trails. I was in a 400 piston bully, but I had three track setters to control and drive in a, loop that would make sense for the people that were skiing and that was like fantastic like that was
0: yeah that sounds a bit uh reinvigorating it, yeah
1: yeah it was a release you know like it was it was really interesting i mean the year that i spent working on on the railroad uh i also worked three nights a week just being a frontline groomer, flat tracker. And that was the hard like that was the hardest job I'd ever had. Like being a flat tracker who that winter on an 800 inch winter would have like a whole mountain to open out of three peaks. They would be closed Monday through Thursday and I'd come on Friday night and they'd be like yeah, lifts running in the morning, you got to dig out the bottom station, top station and rebuild all the runs. <laughs> like, and it was all I could do to like get to the top of the chair with my tiller up and then try and like rebuild these runs in one shift or you know like sometimes I'd even stay like an extra 2 or 3 hours so that 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 side of the mountain would open. Cause I mean, it was just, it was a challenge. I mean, it's finding, finding something that, that makes, that inspires curiosity and wonder is the best job you can find. And when you lose that curiosity and wonder and that joy and appreciation for your product and for your accomplishment, then it's time to move on. Like go to the beach. Do something less hectic or move up. Step into where your manager can actually rely on you. And if your manager is a good manager, they're going to train you and mentor you so that they can step up. Because if they're dumb enough not to be building the foundation for them to get higher in the industry, then you're just not in a good place. you know, like work with people, not against people.
0: You know what I think is cool? I, I think it's cool that you were able to see that and move forward in a direction that was going to be beneficial for you and everybody else. I think that's pretty big too to be able to talk about it. Another thing that's on my mind has been is the training component. Um, you know, I've... I've definitely said I'd like to have access to some kind of simulator that a manufacturer has out there just to talk about it, if nothing else, because it's an interesting component. But the training component to me is doing both marketing and pushing things in a direction towards the digital platform and then the hours spent behind the sticks. So what's your take?
1: So, you know, 10,000 hours to do anything, you become pro. It goes by quick, but if you're not paying attention it won't last. And if you are paying attention, yeah, if it doesn't sink in, then you're not going to progress. And if you're not progressing, then that limbo or that staleness breeds contention and and aligning yourself with people that will allow you to be better. Like yellow iron politics, the old yellow iron politics of like Fuck the rookie. Let's throw him in the fucking mud hole and see if he can get out. Like I hate it. I hate that old school mentality of screwing the rookie. Let's let's lap this run and make sure the rookie's on the outside right so he drives into the wind drift and gets stuck on purpose just to make his night miserable. Like those kind of hazing and like just bullying tactics are bullshit. There's no place for it. There's no place for it.
0: No, there's not. And you can't build up a department by constantly breaking people down. Um I like to call it the just their um what's the best way to put it? transactional relationships. There we go. When things are transactional, you're not lifting anybody up. You're literally moving on from one thing to the next. You got to lift people up. Ah, oh, man, it just makes Yeah.
1: makes coming to work such a
0: joy. Yeah, it does. It does. And um one of the coolest memories that I have of just being in the machine was I had two gentlemen last year, Elijah Sutton and Tyler Lincoln Goodman, who literally were they understood they had they had minimal or zero experience, <laughs> but they also they also wanted, they were hungry and they wanted to contribute. That's all it was. They wanted to contribute. They wanted to be a part of the team. And I thoroughly enjoyed uh, taking them in, you know, holding their hand and just showing them as much as I could and telling them that they had it and believing in them. If you know? the
1: resorts continue to make rookies miserable, there's very few people that are willing to do it out of passion. And you got to recognize... That it doesn't pay that well, but it sure is fun.
0: Um, you know what? I think you could probably yes, it doesn't pay the bills, but when you can instill confidence in people, but there's that component of negativity. Like you got to hold people accountable to that. Be like, dude, you're fucking it up for everybody, man. Like
1: and demanding that from your managers. Like, hey, the crew is actually doing pretty good, but you know what? It, you're detracting. You know, like, that's a that's a tough one because a lot of people are afraid to better everybody underneath them because then they're like, oh, well, then I become, I'm not relevant in my position. They siloize themselves instead of building a pyramid. You know, it's like top-down management is just, it, we've all learned that it's not working. So... Bring people
0: along. Yes, definitely bring people along. And maybe instead of thinking that you're going to be irrelevant and you're trying to protect all your ideas, it's probably more important that you get relative with the situation, that the future's on the way. Whether you want to believe it or not, man, people need to get relative with the fact that this next generation that's coming up is the future of the ski world, snowboard world, snow industry. And we should just embrace that shit. Um, We should encourage them. We should be... Positive. We should let them be themselves and figure out how we can manage their skill sets and put them in the proper situation, and so that they can they can have a bright future. and and The future of this industry will be amazing. That's just my two cents. Um, JP, I really want to say thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to to jump on the podcast and be with us. I always enjoy catching up, and I think you're humble. Uh, beginnings and your your humble stories of how you've learned and failed and you're trying to reinvent yourself now are are definitely testaments to your character and and once again getting relative with the situation and, and trying to grow so thank you man
1: yeah. yeah no i i appreciate it because it's been a a hard hard run from being a real egotistical asshole to someone who really is a i'm a student of the game now you know like i really want i really want to push things forward in ways that it's not just me
0: okay before we get out of here i just want to give a huge shout out and thank you to jp martin for coming on the podcast i know it's a big ask so thank you for your time sir if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to the channel. It would mean a lot to me. And follow us on social media at the TheBladeDive on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Make sure you're tagging us in those photos. Use the hashtag TheBladeDive. And I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there. My favorite part of the episode was definitely the railroad bit. And snowcats go elsewhere besides ski resorts. So maybe let's keep talking about that kind of topic. Okay, you know the deal. Don't be a dick. Please fill your machine with diesel at the end of your shift.